dawn of agriculture, around 8,000 BC, the population of the world was approximately 5 million. Over the 8,000 year period up to 1 AD, it grew to around 200 million, with a growth rate of under 0.05% per year. A tremendous change occurred with the Industrial Revolution, whereas it had taken all of human history up until the year 1800 for the world's population to reach 1 billion. The second billion was achieved in only 130 years in 1930. And the third billion in just 30 years in 1960, the fourth billion in 15 years in 1974. And the fifth billion in only 13 years by 1987. During the 20th century alone, the population in the world has grown from 1.6 billion people to a whopping 6 billion. Right now, in 2020, there are 7.8 billion people occupying our planet. In 1970, there were roughly half this many. Growth rate hovers a little over 1% each year, meaning every year there are around 80 million additional people needing a place to live, food to eat, warmth, clean water, sanitation, a place to study, a place to work. And the means to get around. But growth rate alone is not the only interesting change the world is seeing. Where those people are living is changing too. More than four billion people now live in urban areas globally. The UN estimates 2007 was the year when, for the first time, more people in the world lived in urban areas than in rural areas. For most of human history, populations lived in very low-density rural settings, but people are becoming wealthier and the high living standards and the opportunities of work and education have drawn people to the urban centres. It's projected that close to 7 billion people will live in urban areas by 2050. You're listening to The Tunnelling Podcast. I'm John Young. And I'm Rian Owen. So I'm always really taken by the the statistic that I think it was in 2008, over 50% of the world's population began to live in cities for the first time. And if you look at the sort of long-term view of civilization, that's an incredible feat. You, you've changed from sort of the classic model of humankind, disaggregated communities, sort of relatively low levels of aggregation or, you know, low density, to this sort of prevailing model of for every two people at least one of them is in a closely packed city space. Uh, so I'm Will Squires, um, I have a really long nebulous job title called Digital Lead for Cities and Development. I've had a bit of an odd career path in that I started out as an engineer, a civil engineer. I worked on major programs, Crossrail HS2, worked for TFL and some other pieces. Then did a second degree in data science and smart cities. I lead a huge amount of Atkins' sort of Pathfinder projects in the sort of digital city space, um, how technology affects the world we live in, how it's changing it. But I also have a sort of deep passion for cities. I have a background in urbanism. Um, I've studied under some of the UCL sort of Bartlett professors in that space. And I'm, I'm very interested in the way cities are changing, not only the built environment we live in, but also the way we respond to the world. By 2050, it's projected that more than two-thirds of the world's population will live in urban areas. Now, there's cities aren't new. Cities have existed in some format for a huge amount of time. But this prevailing trend of, of mass exile from the country, driven by a huge range of things, um, be it sort of global connectivity, incentivizing people to go to the city and find work, 
at levels never seen before, be it some of the things like uh, climate change changing the feasibility of being a rural farmer. Um, there's some really interesting research that cites that one of the reasons for the sort of Syrian crisis was actually a lack of water um, due to drought, which drove people to cities which then led to mass tensions as you have different urban groups beginning to sort of congeal and conflict in a space that is new and changing. There's a broader macro trend for me about how the world is changing. Um, cities are often seen as dirty, high energy places, but actually New York is the lowest carbon per capita city in the United States, and it's one of the largest. So I think there's this sort of perfect storm of overlapping influences that are driving areas to urbanize that is really, really starting to change the fabric of the world in a really, really interesting way. The link between urbanization and economic growth has been well documented. Urbanization is complex. However, there are many recognized benefits of urban settings when developed successfully. Including high density of economic activity, shorter trade links, utilization of human capital, shared infrastructure and division of labor. The driver for urbanization is often the dream of a better life. The city is seen as the land of opportunity. There's still this real focus on the city of the land of opportunity. Um, I think the prevalence of social media makes some of the experiences people can have in the city more obvious and more attractive. And I think there is a perception amongst younger people that if you want to you know, make money and make a career and, and drive those things, going to the city is likely to be more exciting and more interesting. And it has this feeling of being um, a place where new ideas come together. I mean, in the United Kingdom, um, cities are overwhelmingly left-leaning and liberal. There are also cultural melting pots, which in the sort of current cultural ethos is quite attractive. And to a lot of people, they want to surround themselves with the different and different cultures, be they from Europe or beyond. And as these new people are attracted to the city, the demographics change. And I think typically if you look at the sort of demographic skew of cities, they're 10 to 15 years younger than the average in rural communities and that divide is changing. But more importantly, I think, and I look at within my own cohort of this as sort of a local evidence base, increasingly people want to stay in that city environment. I think there's an old idealism that perhaps used to exist over from wartime and, and older, more Christian communities, perhaps particularly in the sort of Anglo-Saxon West, um, about going out to the country and that was the ideal and, you know, the Anglo-Saxon ideal of owning one's own plot of land, which transformed into the American dream, is something that's never really died in Western society or European Western society. Considering the impact of that on changing cultures, what people want from life is very, very different from to work and provide their family now, whether that's a focus on personal experience, whether it's the move away from sort of the traditional American nuclear family. Um, what it means is I think some of that sort of city flight in mid late 30s is changing texture a little bit, which again changes the texture of the city, but also their massive loci for immigration. 
So there are many factors that draw people to a city. From the opportunities in work and education to the Instagrammable life experiences. And the appeal of the countryside has weakened over the years, so the older generations are adding to the urban population boom. In the UK, some 83% of the population now live in urban centres. Some 56 million people. It is urbanisation rather than population growth alone that can put significant pressure on a country's infrastructure. So, so if you look at a lot of the work that Michael Batty did in pioneering the sort of science of cities and complexity of cities, Batty argues that all of the fundamental systems of a city are linked through complexity science. So if you have stress on a train station in Lewisham, um, it's likely to lead to some impact on employment in Harrow. Now, that's a sort of simplistic way of saying all things are connected, and I think we understand that. But if we think as of population, employment and transport as sort of three major levers on how a city works and performs, the business case for Crossrail 2 is a really, really interesting point because a few of the key drivers for Crossrail 2 are one of them is to unlock the dramatic volume of housing in the Lee Valley um, and create new space for population and create, you know, an ability to connect sort of nuclear towns through to the centre and build more houses in those areas to satisfy London's population growth. And another major driver for it is to alleviate overcrowding on the Northern Line, which by 2020 or 30 is um, expected to be at really, really high and painful and uncomfortable levels. Now, that just sort of picks up some of the complexity of how transport acts across the city because a, an economic driver of releasing new hand for development in the North East can also be a mechanism to alleviate transport congestion in the South West. Um, and that's partly because it is a North East to South West line, so I'm not isolating them completely. But when we think about how stations and how metros have shaped communities. A lot of the most attractive areas in the world to live on sort of readily available public indices are places that have been built around nuclear metro and train station areas, creating these walkable communities. Um, they're massive determinants of house price. So pretty much a, if a house is within a five minute walk of a station, it will invariably cost more than a house within a 15 minute walk. And if you're a 20 minute walk from a public transport connection, prices drop quite dramatically. But I think London's an interesting case because you look at what the growth in population in East London has done for the modernization of the North London line, which runs through Hackney um, and recently went from I think it's 10 trains an hour to 12 trains an hour, or 18 trains an hour in the morning peak. You have this situation where population growth has driven infrastructure investment improvement, and despite an increase in capacity, it's already at capacity. Now, another good example of this might be if you're going to build three or 4,000 homes in East London, um, how do they all get to work? Now, th these two things are massively, massively connected. I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens when the lights go on on Crossrail. Moreover, for how that connects and impacts the Central Line, how it changes the interchange at Highbury and the Victoria Line, which picks up a lot of those people travelling east to west. And it's one of these things where 
the impact of a station upgrade or a metro upgrade project has a transformative impact on all of the other metro and transport systems across the city. If you look at some of the plans that TfL has for repathing buses when Crossrail goes live, they're really interesting ways of showing how moving one thing on the underground can dramatically change the world that exists above. If you look at some of the impacts on house prices throughout the sort of life cycle as Crossrail and how they've gone up and up and up, then peaked and flattened and gone up, you know, how much of that price is baked in, you can see that massive tie-in towards a station project in a really interesting way. These things start to spin up across, um, across the city in really interesting ways and affect the decisions people make. Now I think station upgrade projects are interesting parts of the puzzle. Um, I think there's some interesting changes in behaviour in what is a station and what constitutes a station, how a station forms an open part of a community. I mean, historically there have been a lot of lumpy big concrete blocks that don't necessarily promote feelings of well-being. Promoting feelings of well-being. Will is saying that our experience of a metro station is not based just on how quickly we move through it, but the way we experience the space, how it makes us feel. Through light, artwork, wayfinding. We did a piece of work on Lewisham Station a few years ago where we took demographic data um, describing the types of people that use that station in a sort of, I guess, user-focused design way um, and tried to play that into the design. So we looked and saw there were massive demographics of young graduates which suggested we probably needed to have good lighting when they were coming back late at night drunk. Now, that doesn't seem like a particularly uh, insightful design decision. But when you think there are so many levers pulling people around in how they design cohesive spaces, having a focus on community as opposed to design codes and standards can be really, really valuable. Um, thinking about how stations can be more than just a means to get to work. There's some wonderful work by Centric Lab, Josh Artis and Araceli Camargo, looking at the impact um, the built environment has on neuroscience and stress. How do these places make you feel when you travel through them? I'm sure we've all been on a congested tube platform waiting to cram onto a train. It's a really, really unpleasant experience. Similarly, when you descend the escalator at Southwark Station or any of the Jubilee Line upgrade, these grand sort of cathedrals of concrete, for me, I often just sit there and look around because it's quite relaxing, it's quite releasing, and it changes my mood. Now, people think of stations as wholly about numbers, about capacity, about can we satisfy these economic drivers, but for a lot of people, they're a really integral, important part of their day. The metro station is the gateway to the rest of the city. It has the power to influence your mood. Skew your memories. And ultimately change the area it serves. Now, thinking about what that public transport does to people I think is increasingly important and if we think about station upgrade projects not just in terms of let's jam another 50,000 people through there as a pinch point but also as a mechanism to improve people's daily life I think there's an extra lens to that that's really important that is often not pulled out in a world that can be overly driven by financials and numbers. The next station is Tottenham Court Road. Change here for Central Line.
Tottenham Court Road London Underground Station is the 12th busiest on the network. There's upwards of 30 million entries and exits of passengers per year, and that's forecast to only increase when Crossrail comes on stream. The, the station itself is located at the east end of Oxford Street, London's premier shopping location and the heart of the West End. It's an interchange station between the Central Line and the Northern Line. It has quite a long history, from the construction of the Northern Line initially, through several reconfigurations and the construction of the Central Line, till it had its last upgrade in the 1980s. My name's Martin Noack and I work for Jacobs, where I look after our European tunnelling team. Due to overcrowding on the platforms, on a regular basis, passengers will be held up at concourse level until the, the overcrowding had cleared down at the lower levels. So when Crossrail comes on stream, an already overcrowded station will become even busier. The existing station just couldn't cope with this kind of throughput. So the upgrade works consisted of an enlarged subsurface ticket hall concourse, which is six times bigger than the original station this is vast, isn't it? It's loads of Yeah, if you imagine, you see where the, the other gate line is there? Yeah. From that gate line to the far end, that's probably how big it used to be, approximately. There was an exit to Horns Corner, which is kind of over in that way. That's been filled up. So there was always one coming down here, coming in, and then that one stayed in front of us. Um, but everything else, obviously, is, is completely different. The, the plaza entrances have got an award-winning glazed canopy over both of them, and these, this is made from structural glass without any um, steelwork, uh, any supporting steelwork. 12 odd metres high, not a single piece of structural, apart from the entrance frame that's steel, all yeah. the rest of it, it's just cladding, it's just aluminium cladding on glass. In addition, new escalator provision was provided to the northern line. The existing station only had escalators down to the, the central line from um, the ticket hall area, so we put in new escalators to the, to the northern line and a new concourse with additional access to platforms and a, and a connection to the crossrail station at the end. We also put in a new central line access tunnel from the, the bottom of the central line escalators to relieve congestion on the existing access tunnel and again additional connections to the platforms. How long did it take you to um, get an accurate mental map of your way around down here? Well it constantly changes, every time yeah. I visit a site it would be different. Yeah, the hoarding so. would have moved yeah. slightly. Yeah. Yeah. So. We made the entire station was became step-free with uh, step-free provision to all platforms all interchange levels and the surface. Um, a separate barrier to get on the lift to go down. So one of the important thing is when you create a station as step three, it's um, one of the requirements of the standard and obviously it's the right thing to do is to make sure that people who use the lifts aren't inconvenient so they don't have to travel further or, or go somewhere where everyone else doesn't need to go. Part of the time to do that, this, this lift is, is fairly central in the station but it does end up having its own individual gate line. We provided a new escape shaft from more areas of the station uh, into Falconbrook Court. This is a seven level shaft with plant rooms um, throughout and at the top. The evacuation shaft, the seven level deep evacuation shaft comes up into a new oversight development. So we had to 
design it such that part of the basement of that new oversight development will be owned by London Underground and part of it will be of the new development. So we had an interface there with the oversight development team to make sure that all the load paths were all agreed. Oh, yes. That yeah. is the, the top of the escape shaft. So all these doors with louvers here, they're either escape doors, you can see the doors at the end there, with next to the red box, yeah. red plans box. That's the emergency rendezvous point and the exit from the station. And then these doors with louvers are where there's uh, transformers for um, EDF and early within the, the station itself. Right, so that's all going to get absorbed by this building that's going to be constructed over the top of it. So they're going to permanently have underneath their building the access into this shaft space. That's right, yeah. So the escape yeah. is this little street. Yeah. Typical to many London underground stations in central London, the, the geology is, is typical London geology. It's made ground, some alluvium, and then some pretty good tunneling medium in, in the London clay. So due to the previous extensions and upgrades of the station, the ground is already disturbed. And therefore, it's less predictable with a disturbed ground, there's always a possibility that it wasn't going to behave as we expected it to behave. Um, and therefore, we need to be ready to take um, alternative means. You do some sampling um, and we would you know, get, um, have a, a geotechnical report written that would tell us what our parameters would be. Um, but we would also prepare during construction for things not to be quite as we expected. And, and certainly whenever you're dealing with um, an existing structure like these, then there's, there's always the unexpected. The, 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 the shafts and the existing tunnels themselves might not be where the record drawing said they would be. They might be thicker than you would expect them to find, and they're expected to be, or they might be thinner, or they might be in a lot worse condition than you expected. So all these things you need to prepare for um, and be ready to, to tackle on site when, when you finally start opening things up. We did a lot of uh, searching through the archives, looking at record drawings, looking at past inspection reports. We did a lot of crawling around back of house areas and looking at construction and trying to confirm that the record drawings actually showed what was in the ground. So you would be looking at the, um, the cast iron lining or the brick lining without any finishes on so you could see whether there was any water ingress, you could see whether there was any cracking or any um, other movement, signs of movement which might indicate that the, um, the structure wasn't quite as solid as you expected it to be. We didn't do much in the way of intrusive survey works because it was an existing station open to the public. Certainly in the, in the front of house areas, we couldn't go around and um, take samples of um, a brick fascia to see what the tunnel lining was like behind it because that would have left a huge mess in, you know, for the passengers to see for, for several years to come. Um, and so, sometimes that, that did lead us in, in, into issues during construction where we expected a certain level of perhaps fire protection to be in place that then wasn't in place so then we had to go away and make sure that our design incorporated you know, fire cladding um, and fire protection to an appropriate level that might not already have been there. So one of the requirements was that the station remains open to passengers throughout the, the whole project. So we spent a lot of time in the early stages looking at the construction sequencing and the construction phasing to ensure that, that we were able to do this. It's probably worth noting, if you look at the, um, the hoardings over there towards Crossroads, 
So all of that, that's your fire hoardings that have got to be you know, airtight and fireproof and so on. It's effective as a construction site outside of there. So we had those all over the place as we were doing the construction of various different bits of the works were hoarded off at any one time. Majority of the time, the, the passengers wouldn't have known other than the signs and the hoardings and so on. Um, when excavation is taking place adjacent to existing tunneling, tunnels rather, um, then they would have heard the breakers. There are, there would have been limits imposed as to when that kind of work can be done. Um, and if it's really right close to the line, then probably we would have been asked to do that at night when you know, doing engineering hours when there's no passengers coming through. You can certainly, um, if you're behind the hoardings, you can feel the vibrations of the trains running past or you could hear the people on the other side. But I think you, know, you get used to it. You know, you, you know where you are, you know you're in a station, you know these things are happening um, and you know that your work has been, um, you know, you've got a method statement that says it's a, a, you know, you've worked out a safe way of doing something while these things are still happening and you know that your design has been drafted with that in mind. So it's, it's just a normal way of routine of doing your work. So as you know, you, you're, you're working one side of a hoarding that probably isn't actually very thick, and on the other side you've got a platform edge. But, yeah. but then you look at that hoarding and you can see how often it's braced and connected to the existing structure, so you know that it's, it's not going to... If you happen to trip over and fall against it, it's not going to suddenly give way and you'll end up on the track. Subsurface signal, you see the spine beam down the middle with the precast concrete um, beams and the, yeah. the in situ topping above. And these the are ticket hall itself, the new ticket hall, the new subsurface ticket hall was built underneath Charing Cross Road. So this required Charing Cross Road to be diverted and in several stages as well. Initially around the back of centre point before finally being diverted back over the roof of the new subsurface ticket hall structure. This had to be dovetailed into the, the programme of works for the underground sections of the station to ensure that passengers could enter and leave the parts of the station that were programmed to be open at all times. For the entire subsurface ticket hall excavation, that was a secant piled box with a, a cast in situ um, permanent lining inside. Uh, and that followed all the way down through the Northern Line escalator decline to the bottom. Decline, which is built inside a, a second pile box. What's the purpose of the, um, the baffles? Yeah. Um, it's to break up the roof, really break up the view. Just give it some sort of architectural... Okay, it's not, it's not there for sound or absorption no. or anything like that. The load-bearing roof that carries Charing Cross Road, that was... Uh, constructed using um, precast bridge beams and a, a cast in situ topping. So a, a series of uh, precast ribs um, with uh, precast planks between them and a cast in situ topping. So this is the new subsurface signal. You see the spine beam down the middle with the precast concrete. Um, so we had a, a spine beam running down the middle which was cast in situ and between the spine beam and the outer edges was a series of precast bridge beams 
Um, the spacing of the bridge beams was such that in between those, there was uh, some precast planks were installed just as, as a, like a permanent false work, if you like. And then across the whole lot, a, a, a topping of the cast in situ concrete, approximately 300 millimeters thick. And then on top of that, a, a fairly thin layer of backfill and then the road construction on top. Tottenham Road is famous for its mosaics by Eduardo Polozzi that were installed, I believe, in the 1980s. So we were um, tasked with making sure that those weren't damaged as far as practical. You know, and we saved, nine, I think it was 97% of the mosaic tiles remained in situ. Some, unfortunately, had to be taken out um, due to the works and, and, and some were uh, yeah, some were lost during the works, but you know, 97% were remained in place. So this is the um, this is the mosaic that we transported down from the one of the existing entrances. So that came down in one piece, dropped down through a shaft, and then oh, fixed wow. to the wall. How did you do? How did you get it? So you just broke it out and behind and took yeah, the so concrete it was, it was on. Yeah, it was, yeah, and the backing that it was on, it was sitting on the wall. It was all carefully cut out, yeah. brought down, fixed to the wall here, and then the, the wall made up to, to suit it. It's a wonderful. That's well worth saving, wasn't it? Yeah. The client was keen to keep on the sort of legacy of artwork in the station, so the new station has some artwork by Daniel Buren, a Parisian artist. So these are um, some black and white and coloured um, abstract art on quite a large scale so we had to make sure that that was incorporated into the the cladding of the new station um, and obviously that, that involved a whole new um, dimension of um, interface with you know um, the engineer and the artist and the architect sort of working together to make that happen so that, that was something new and different and you know, this is sometimes stressful so the artwork is part and part of the cladding. So the, the artist um, would have come up with some concepts, sketches of what he wanted to see, which the architect would have then made into a, a, a conceptual design which then would have gone to and fro between the artist and the architect until that had been resolved. And then, then that would have come onto the drawings for, um, for the engineer and the fabricators to, to come up with the, the actual glass panels themselves. So it's quite, a, it's quite something. The, the idea was that um, it would almost become a meeting place in itself. Big um, geometric designs and they're coloured on one side, black and white on the other side. And the idea is that um, you might arrange to meet someone underneath the, the green diamond, which is a specific place at the bottom of the plaza entrances. Um, so the, the idea is that it becomes a whole kind of meeting point and talking point in itself. So the, the coloured artwork is on the northern line side and the black and white artwork is on the, the central line side. Um, and then you have your two structural glass plaza entrances at the foot of centre point and they come down into your coloured artwork and then you look across to the black and white artwork at the central line.
um, in an emergency, then these will be deployed by the fire systems um, after four minutes, they'll close, um, which will enable the uh, escaping passengers to be in a protected zone. So they permanently held open with like electric right, magnet. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, and then yeah. So after um, you know, a confirmed um, alert, and they'll release and they'll close, but they'll still be openable if someone's still stuck on the platform. They can come through. The fire safety aspects of the whole station were modernised. So this included all the fire systems and also all the evacuation provision, which included the construction of a seven-floor deep shaft in Falconbrook Court that connected to both the central line and the northern line levels. This, this will enable evacuation of the entire station to remain compliant with evacuation requirements. In order to ensure that this this was facilitated, we provided smoke doors on the platforms which would deploy to ensure that once the last person got off the platform that they then remained in a place of safety and the smoke on the platform wouldn't be following them up through the evacuation areas. So one of the key things for the whole project was making sure that at all times the station remained fire compliant. So the works were carried out without a full station closure. We had closures of the central line platform and long-term close of the Northern Line platform, which meant that the trains were running through but no passengers could get on or off. These happened um, alternately, uh, and the station itself remained open throughout. So as you can imagine, with some of the station works being completed and some not, parts of the old station being used and parts of it not being used, and the hoardings all over the place demarking between the two areas, making sure that everything was fire compliant at all times was a... Uh, uh, a full-time job for a whole team of people. The reason that we had closures of the Northern Line platforms initially and then the Central Line platforms later was so that we could complete our connections, our new connections to the interchange tunnels that we'd just built. For example, a new lift or a new cross passage between the two platforms needed to be broken through onto the platform and this could only be done while the platform itself was closed. Originally, the, the long interchange tunnels have been designed to be spheroidal graphite iron or cast iron. Um, and when the contractor came on board, it was decided that uh, value, as a value engineering proposal, that that would be changed to spray concrete. The, the ground was expected to be quite homogenous and, and a good medium for, for spray concrete tunneling. Um, and the advantage in that is that you can have a slightly flatter invert, so you don't have quite so much wasted space underneath your walkway. So there was, there was quite a, a saving in um, excavating material for making that change. The central line interchange tunnel that we constructed, the new spray concrete line tunnel. Again, you notice there's much more feeling space, there's yeah. more headroom than there is in all the other ones. And then we have uh, our overbridges. So sprayed concrete lining is, is where we excavate a certain advance, perhaps a metre, um, and sometimes the full depth of the tunnel depending on the size of the tunnel but more often than not you would uh, excavate maybe a, a top heading and then a bench and an invert if you've got a, a tunnel sort of about sort of seven or eight meters diameter or possibly you might split it even more depending on what kind of ground you're expecting to find so you excavate the, the your area then you spray an initial uh, flashcrete layer and then you might need to put up some reinforcement or or more often than not, you would use uh, fibre-reinforced 
spray um, sprayed concrete in order to keep as uh, as much um, as possible away from the exposed face as, as you can and you'd, you'd uh, spray your initial lining which might be 150 millimeters thick or 200 millimeters thick depending on how you've calculated it um, and then once you've completed your entire tunnel you've done all your your heading bench and, and inverts um, excavations and, and your primary lining then um, you will put waterproofing perhaps in the form of a sheet membrane or a sprayed um, membrane which is what we used at Tottenham Court Road uh, and once all that's in place then you can uh, cast your secondary lining and your secondary lining could be sprayed again although you have to take care not to puncture your, your waterproofing that you've already that you just um, put in place or it could be cast in situ using a, a moving formwork shutter. On Tottenham Court Road we used both on the central line the secondary lining was sprayed the second line interchange tunnel which is a long long hundred meter long um, passenger interchange tunnel and on the northern line interchange tunnel which was a more complicated shape we used a, a formwork uh, system to to cast the secondary lining. Line concourse. So this is a big spray concrete um, cavern yeah. at the bottom of the um, compiled excavation box with the um, excavators coming yeah in. so the top of those escalators is the new ticket hall that's right yeah yeah this is massive isn't it compared yeah, to what you're used huge, to yeah. yeah in in terms of SCL the the most interesting part of this project was the overbridges the the passenger overbridges across the, the central line platforms we had a new a new interchange tunnel that came onto the side of the existing um, the, the, the existing central line tunnels um, and this the idea was that this would then be connected um, to the center of the two platform tunnels so in order for that to happen a connection had to be made over the top of one of the platform tunnels this is called a passenger overbridge traditionally these were hand mined with two headings done either side and then after the headings were constructed over the top of the platform tunnels they, that would then be um, enlarged out into a half round uh, with, with a, a half round tunnel using um, cast iron linings and the the, the width of the, the walkway would then be created. The contractor proposed an alternative solution um, to creating a, a sprayed concrete cavern instead. This was the first time it had been done on the London Underground so Network. You notice how tall it is. Yeah. To get the, the head on, it's three and a half metres, I think is the minimum height required. Surface. Oh really? That's the new rules. Well, it's not new. It's been around for a while, but okay. since the uh, last tunnels were dug here, yes, it's far more pleasant to walk down. Absolutely, and again, it's light and airy. And yeah, feels comfortable, and you feel less hurried as well. Yes. And it resulted in program savings, but also a health and safety benefit as it significantly reduced the amount of handwork that needed to be done. In, instead of doing two separate headings across the sides, um, over the top of the, the cast iron, the existing cast iron platform tunnel, it involved a single sprayed concrete line cavern, which was excavated in a, a heading and bench configuration in stages um, over the top the, the, the central line tunnel. The issue in, in this case was a 
a Brickline Thameswater mid-level sewer, a 1.9-metre ID Brickline sewer, 340 millimetres in thickness, which lay within uh, a metre or so of the top of the new overbridge as it was constructed. The overbridges was being, was being squeezed between the platform tunnels and the, the Thames water sewer above. So in order to ensure that the Thames water sewer didn't move into the excavation as we released the ground around it, which would have been um, quite a disaster, so, so to avoid damage to the, the brick-lined sewer, we created a what we called spiles, a raft of spiles, which are horizontal piles, which we drove from a conveniently located disused Royal Mail tunnel in the vicinity. So we drove horizontal spirals out of this tunnel, which then created a, a, a bed, if you like, for the, the Thames water sewer to sit on, which then enabled us to excavate underneath it to form the passenger overbridge tunnels. If the Royal Mail tunnel hadn't have been there, then we'd have had to do a similar, I guess, a, a similar... Um, arrangement could have been created using um, some temporary headings um, from, from a different location and, and to, to drive out some spirals from a temporary heading. But the, the fact that the Royal Mail Tunnel was there and wasn't in use was very convenient for us. So using a very small, low-height drilling rig, effectively on its side, coring out through each, each individual pan of the post office tunnel, driving these steel-cased spirals that are then filled with concrete. We installed upwards of 90 of these grout-filled steel spirals from the post office tunnel, and each one was approximately 16 metres in length. So we're going to the... We're heading towards the central line now. Yeah, so we're going to go over the passenger, uh, the, uh, the overbridge. We will do, yeah. Whilst working in close proximity to the existing station tunnels, the platform tunnels, or the interchange tunnels, we were very mindful of the effect that our works might have on those existing assets. For example, as the ground is unloaded above a platform tunnel due to a, the construction of, a, of an overbridge or an interchange passageway, then it's likely that the cast iron lining will move. Cast iron is very brittle, and as it moves, it's likely to crack. And if it cracks too much, then that becomes a problem for the integrity of the lining. So we did a lot of, we did a lot of monitoring works, and we did a lot of calculations to ensure that the movement that the lining was likely to experience was within its capacity. The bolts between the existing segments would have been loosened so that when the tunnel relaxes as the ground is removed and it kind of expands that it doesn't snap because you've allowed some play in the bolts um, you know that that's taken place and, and you can look and you can see it you've, you've excavated down and you can see the top of it and you can see you know whether whether it's cracked or anything and it's you know, it hasn't <laughs> and then you know and you, it is very interesting you can see the um some of the temporary works that had been left behind by the people that built the platform tunnels, you know, some of the timbers and, and you know, um, grout stuffing and bagging and so on, you can see as you excavate over the back, you can see how they do it. So it's quite interesting from a sort of a professional perspective as well, see how things are done or used to be done. Um, so we used a lot of real-time monitoring to give us a, a constant picture 
of the radial distortion of the lining, should the existing assets be subject to movement, then it's possible that the existing finishes might become loose and fall out. Obviously, this couldn't be allowed to happen. So he spent quite a lot of time either removing the existing finishes, such as concrete that's filled the pans of the cast iron segments, or covering the area with netting to collect plaster that might fall off. All this then had to be removed at the end of the works, made sure that all the loose material had been removed and then the new finishes installed. So for all movements, regardless of whether those were at the surface level or down in the, in the existing station, we have a monitoring plan with various trigger levels, various alert levels that would tell us what to do, um, it, depending on whether certain amounts of movement had been reached. For example, there would be a, an amber trigger, which might suggest that additional measures were taken place, the works may be slowed down or additional support introduced. And then there would be a, a further trigger levels beyond that, which would ultimately lead us to stop the works and close the station. Fortunately, that, that never happened. So additional support measures might be, if, if we were driving a heading above the, the tunnel, it might be to put in additional timbers in the heading or additional support measures in, in maybe the sprayed concrete we were doing. We'd go in shorter advances and perhaps a thicker layer of, of, of shotcrete. Or it could be um, that we would install some support measures into the tunnel that which was moving, so perhaps some, some propping or some bracing of some kind. So this is the glazed screen between the paid and the unpaid side. This is quite a, an architectural feature of the project. You don't see that often. So this is just a, a, a two-thickness yeah. glass glazed screen. No barriers between us and the unpaid side. And this is this is again got the, the striped artwork from Daniel Buren, right? Which is the sort of the the, uh, the black and white or the plain stripes is on the um, the central line side. So is this just done to increase the visible space? Yeah, yeah, make it more comfortable. Yeah. Other construction methods we used some of the interchanges between the platforms and the cross passages were hand mined using we call square works with timber boarding uh, and a mixture of timber boarding and steel frames to, to form the, the opening. So these are um, very sort of traditional tunnelling techniques uh, with, with miners using um, pneumatic tools to, to advance in, in, in small advances and timber up the sides of the excavation before then casting a, a cast in situ concrete lining to form the, the final um, passageway. Um, so we often use those for, for the, the, the stair connections down to the platform levels. The, the key um, issue with that method of construction is um, certainly in, in more of the confined areas where, where the miners are, are using pneumatic equipment is the hand-arm vibration syndrome issues. So a care has to be taken to make sure that all that's been correctly logged um, and that no one has been exposed to more vibration than allowed. I think the tunnelling works all went to plan. There were no significant issues or hiccups with any of the SCL tunnelling or any of the uh, basement excavation and so on. I think the, the difficulty came when we started really looking at some of the existing station works and some of the existing shafts that we had to um, reconfigure and recondition um, 
and we found there was, you know, there was water ingress where we weren't expecting it. There were walls were thicker than we thought, or thinner than we thought, or they weren't made out of what we thought they were made out of. Um, you know, and it's then that we then had to start coming up with some sort of clever solutions just to kind of get us through being able to provide a substrate good enough to put some finishes on. So, for example, one of the escalators, we expected that the um, behind the finishes we would find a, a substantial brick wall that would enable that would be uh, capable of accepting a new equivalent finish. And um, we found when we removed the finishes that it was a cinder block wall that had no strength whatsoever. So then we had to then find a you know, kind of with a solution, a way of making that wall you know, adequate for the the new finishes that we were going to put on it. And it's things like that that came up quite often that we had to be quite reactive to during the, the refurbishment, if you like, the refurbishment phase of the station as opposed to the new build. Read that for us. Great Western Railway Craft Gift Skills Award presented to London Underground, Taylor Drove, Van Nussel for Tottenham Road Station, relocation of Colossi Renewables by Paul Maynard, Rail Minister 2016. So that's for relocation of these and, and saving the, the Colossi Mills. The Tunnelling Podcast is a production of Reby Media in partnership with the British Tunnelling Society. The hosts are me, John Young. And me, Rian Owen. The show is produced by John Young with script supervision from Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound design is by Ross McPherson and series supervision is from Martin Nowak of the British Tunnelling Society. And our executive producer and his own urban centre is Rory Harris. <laughs>